Welcome to Great Minds, a wine-centric podcast where two wine-loving friends take a look beyond what is in the glass. We look behind it, too, discovering the stories and the culture and the history and the people that make it all happen. I'm Gina Birch. We also taste a little wine along the way. I'm Julie Glenn. We especially love tasting wines with the people who make it, and that's what we're doing today with Tom Mortimer. Tom makes wine in both Oregon and Washington under the labels of Jolette and La Cadeau. Thank you for joining us today, Tom. It's so nice to see an actual human being in our area Right. Again. Great to be here, Gina and Julie. Look <laughs> forward to talking about wine. Yeah, you know, you make some uh, beautiful Pinot Noirs, and, and we thought it was a perfect timing to not only talk about what you're doing in, in the other side of the, the coast where from where we are, um, but also talk about this wonderful grape that is so perfect when you're sitting down for Thanksgiving uh, meals and uh, there's there, and, and a grape that is so versatile and makes so many different styles of wine. We wanted to, thought it was good timing to address that as well. Yeah, we are, like it or not, diving headlong into holiday season. Mm-hmm. And Pinot Noir is just like a go-to grape. Well, it certainly is. Uh, Pinot goes with just about everything, um, certainly turkeys, hams, mm-hmm. and anything else. Uh, it can complement even cranberry relish, right? <laughs> uh, well, in small doses, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Not a cranberry guy. You know, and when we talk about Pinot, it's we, we just did it in a blanket statement right there, but there Pinot has so many different personalities. You know, when you just from from Oregon to California and then you go to Burgundy, what tell us a little bit about what makes the Oregon Pinot so so different from the other other regions. Well, great question. Uh, you know, I like to say if you bring 10 people together and you have them bring a bottle of Cabernet and you, you do a blind tasting, at the end of the night, eight out of 10 people will agree on the best couple of wines. Mm-hmm. If you bring Pinot Noir and you do the same thing, at the end of the night, you'll have an argument because <laughs> there are so many different styles of Pinot Noir. It can be very delicate, very feminine, uh, and there are people that, that love that style and it's valid. And then oppositely, at the other end of the spectrum, it can be very rich and ripe and uh, have cola and you know deep flavors almost tasting like Syrah or Zinfandel. So, right. uh, and that's valid too. I think um, in Oregon, we're in between. Generally, uh, of course, uh, where you end up with wine depends on a lot of factors, but really the biggest is soil and weather, climate. And um, with Pinot Noir, what you want is cool nights, um, warm days, not too warm. If it gets too hot, Pinot starts to taste like soda pop. Um, so you don't grow it in a desert, you got to grow it on hillsides near the ocean. And uh, in Oregon, we get a nice uh, uh, middle-of-the-road version of Pinot Noir. It's not super cold, and it's not super hot. You said soil, but your whole headline on your website is rock-grown. So knew, is there any soil there? <laughs> I knew you were going mm-hmm. or you were going to go there. I'm like, let's really do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. curious about that, too. Okay, well, yeah, um, soil I, I usually put in quote marks, especially ah, okay. when we're looking at pictures. <laughs> our, our vineyard looks more like a parking lot. Uh, it's all basalt cobbles. In, in Oregon, there are a number of different soil types, but the primary volcanic soil type is called jory soil. And it's jory when it's five to eight feet deep, and then you hit bedrock. Uh, when it gets to be shallow jory, they call it nakaya. 
and that's maybe three feet deep as a ballpark, and then you hit bedrock. Um, when you get mm. below that, when it starts to look like a parking lot, it's called Witzel. And historically, they just thought fir trees grew on Witzel. And, <laughs> um, and, then, and then this particular uh, foolish person from Minnesota came out and didn't know any better and bought a very rocky piece of ground. Having been a wine collector, I knew that the best wines in the world were grown on rocks. And uh, we planted rocks uh, with Pinot Noir. Do you have to use a certain clone? I mean, did you really have to research what clone's going to, or or what it, does it matter with with the rocks? I mean, I well, mean, I, I know clonal selection is a big deal for a lot of varietals. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of known in the Willamette Valley as a clone junkie. I have yeah. 18 different clones of Pinot Noir, <laughs> and we grow on about a half a dozen different rootstocks. Uh, yes, I mean, ideally, in any vineyard, you want to tailor the clone selection and the rootstock selection to the soil and the climate. Uh, generally, what I've found is grapes like rocks. Um, my lawnmower doesn't, but the grapes do. <laughs> and um, mostly, you know, what what makes good ripe fruit for making wine is small berries, small clusters, very concentrated. The flavor in wine comes from the skins. And when you have small berries, you have uh, a higher skin to pulp ratio. And so you get wines that are quite concentrated. Um, what what the rocks do is they take away the water and they take away the nutrients, which is the two things, those are the two things that grapes need to be happy. When they're happy, they grow leaves. When they're unhappy, they ripen fruit. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, that's very We've simple. We've heard about a vine having to suffer. Right. So now it kind of makes sense a little bit more why. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, up to a point. Um, you know, there's 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 suffering and there's abuse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you don't want to be mean. No, you don't want to be mean. Don't call um, them ugly or fat or whatever. <laughs> and, well, they're they're not quite that sensitive, but uh, <laughs> the uh, you you do want to be careful that you don't get to a place where they're so uh, stressed that you you end up with what they call stressed vine character, where the tannins get very chewy in the back of the wine. Mm-hmm. So. You need to be careful that they have just enough water to kind of feel okay and uh, not wake up every morning and go, oh, I just want to die. Um, if, if they're just kind of right on the edge, uh, we call it deficit irrigation, then they stay happy throughout the season. Well, maybe today I'll get a little bit more water, maybe. Keep maybe. that hope alive. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, you want to keep them growing through the end of the season. I mean, if all the leaves fall off, you're kind of done. Yeah, yeah, I would say. So when you picked this site, uh, tell us about your, you, you, you gave us a little clue as to what your background is. Minnesota? But, yeah. Well, uh, a long time in Minnesota. Actually mm-hmm. uh, grew up in the Chicago Burbs, uh, moved out to uh, uh, Philadelphia after college and met my wife in Philly. Um, we moved back to Minneapolis. We were there for quite a few years, 20-plus years or so. Um, I originally worked in the paper and packaging industry, and I was uh, doing marketing and sales, and I'd be out with customers. And when you're out with customers um, and you've got the credit card, you get the wine list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, there you go. Uh, way back then, I knew very, very little about wine. I started studying wine. I got hooked on wine, started collecting wine, and then... Uh, uh, fast forward, one of my very good friends from um, early Chicago high school days had moved out to Oregon. In the mid-90s, we went out to visit him, and I just fell in love with Willamette, mm-hmm. Willamette Valley. Uh, the, um, 
the two thoughts merged um, slowly, but but surely. I just um, initially thought I'd love to buy a piece of property in the Willamette Valley with a nice view, and I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I might as well buy grape property. Cause yeah. <laughs> I like to make. I, I I like to drink wine. I didn't know anything about growing wine. That was might 20. as well make my own. Well, you know, I wasn't quite there that that uh, quite yet, but I thought, you know, let's let's see what it's all about, and. Uh, that was 24 years ago. We cleared a raw piece of ground, uh, chased away all the blackberries and second-growth first stumps that had been left <laughs> to me by the prior owner. Uh, second-growth <clears throat> first stumps. I like that. <laughs> they're big. Yeah, uh, right. Fir trees in Oregon are big. When they're second-growth, they're really big yeah. and uh, like five feet in diameter. Oh, boy. And uh, I learned how you split those with a D8 cat and, and horse them out of there, and we had slash piles of small, uh, the size of a small house that had to be burnt. And oh, nice. uh, so we cleared the land. We took it just from completely raw ground. Uh, you know, dug a 700-foot well, just stopped drilling right before we hit China. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and we were off and running. That was, that was 24 years ago. Um, over the years, we've developed the vineyard, planted um, 18 different clones of Pinot Noir, half a dozen different clones of Chardonnay, and here we are. So you talk about the different clones that you've planted. Do you vinify all the different clones separately? Uh, we don't. I mean, occasionally, if there's one in particular we're trying to better understand, we may make a batch of wine from that individual clone. But over the years, I've always determined time and time again that there's more complexity in co-fermentations of clones. Um, put them together. You know, you, you don't need dozens, but it's very helpful to have at least three, maybe, and um, three or more. And I think you just get a better wine. It's more interesting. Well, you have several uh, Pinot Noirs. We've got a bunch of them here today. So then how do you, because if you're co-fermenting and all of that, how do you break it down and and do these different styles? I mean, are you trying to do each one a different style or a different area of the vineyard? Or how are you breaking down these bottlings? Well, in the Pinot Noir, we make five uh, cuvées, basically, mm -hmm. and each has an identity. Um, there's Codest, Diversité, and Rochelle. Uh, Codest is from the east side of the vineyard, and it's a much cooler part of the vineyard. Uh, it's shaded by my neighbor's fir trees. We usually pick that part of the vineyard 10 days later than the west side. Uh, on the west side, which is about six, seven, eight hundred feet away. Uh, Cote Ovest? <laughs> not, pardon? Cote Ovest? Uh, no, Cote Est is east side, and the then west is, west is Rochelle. Okay. which is the rocky I was part just going the for the obvious west. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah, no, didn't. I'm, 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 Rochelle is fairly obvious, but, but yeah, Coat West would be super obvious. But yeah. no, we, we, that one, we didn't make that one. If I plant the ravine, maybe we'll call it that. But uh, the uh, Rochelle is the rockiest part of the vineyard. And um, what I wanted to do with those two cuvées, Cote Est is all about... Uh, long hang time, cool growing season, late ripening, a uh, little bit of soil on the east side. Uh, the Rochelle is very, very rocky, warmer, earlier ripening. We usually pick Rochelle first. Uh, there are different clones planted in those two areas, so not only do we have climate and soil, um, we also have clonal differences to separate the two cuvées. On the north end of the property, we have Diversité, which is made up of uh, 10 different clones of Pinot Noir, three different blocks with different aspects and slope, uh, and hence the, a diverse mixture of attributes. 
And then uh, to the south, we have uh, a planting called Merci, which is made entirely from heritage or heirloom clones of Pinot Noir. These are, this is plant material that was brought over, in some cases, uh, over 100 years ago. Uh, most of it fr- uh, came up, my, my cuttings came up from California from very early people who uh, were excited about growing Pinot Noir in California. And, uh, and then the fifth one would be Triget, which is a wine that we make entirely from whole cluster fermentation. So when you talked about, um, now I have two questions. When you talked about California people coming up north, are you seeing like a migration of California wine growers looking into Washington and Oregon? Well, uh, Just yeah. due to climate change. I'm, I'm curious about that. The climate change and, and an assortment of other factors. I mean, uh, we, yeah. like, we like vineyards in Oregon. Uh, in parts of California, there's so much uh, viticulture that um, certain communities are not in favor of vineyards because uh, there's too much of it. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we're still happy to have development for vineyards up in Oregon. So there's, there's some environmental and, and social differences that are bringing people up. The costs are hugely different. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're just looking at tremendous expense in California. <laughs> um, the other thing, too, is water. That's uh, what I was going to bring up, water, man. You just can't get it in California right now. No, we, we have a big faucet that's hooked up to the clouds, and every <laughs> about every September, whether you want it or not, the, faucet, the faucet gets turned on, and yeah. it's going to rain in Oregon. There's a reason why there's a coffee shop on every block. Yes. Because <laughs> you need to tuck in And the same with, with Washington, I know we've been concentrating on Oregon, but you've got a, a, a project in, in Washington State as well. I do. Um, we A number of our, our, our markets were asking if we could make a, a very high-quality and reasonably priced Cabernet. And so we took our Pinot Noir knowledge, and actually our Cabernets are, are aged in Pinot Noir barrels, which is a little bit different. Hmm. Uh, the other thing we do is we make single vineyard Cabernets. If, if you think about most Cabernets, especially from Washington, uh, they tend to be AVA designated. So mm-hmm. it, it may be a Columbia, uh, or it may be Horse Heaven Hills, or it may be Walla Walla. Uh, but you don't see single vineyards uh, put out too much in a cuvee and and our cabernets are all single vineyard wines and they're all under you know they're all in the under fifty dollars they are they're yeah the cabernets are generally in the maybe thirty five dollar range uh we've got a couple that are maybe forty um we're they're under our jolete brand Mm -hmm. um j-o-l-e-t-e and i was going to ask you to spell it thank you for doing that Yep, glad to do it. Yeah, Jolette. She and was saying Jolette. Are we going to drink some Jolette today? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds. Let me throw out my gum. <laughs> Just yeah. kidding. No, I'm not that kind of a wine no. drinker. No, that's okay, and it's okay if you are. I'm not. Um, but <laughs> uh, you mentioned a minute ago with Pinot Noir that you did some whole cluster. Correct. Um, can you give us a quick winemaker's Cliff's Notes version of what carbonic maceration is and how whole cluster is different from otherwise? Well, uh, carbonic, what you're doing is basically letting the fermentation occur within the grapes when you're talking about whole cluster. There's other ways of of doing carbonic uh, fermentations, um, closed containers and things of that sort. But within the context of whole cluster, you basically have all these little berries that are individually beginning to ferment inside the berry. And they're pretty tight little bunches, aren't they? 
Uh, they can be, um, but I mean the, the 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 fermentation is really going on within the berry, not the bunch. And um, uh, when you do whole cluster wines, one of the challenges is when you're done, you still have sugar inside the berries, and so you have to press the wine off. When you press the wine off, when it's even when it's done fermenting. Uh, you know, you can be down to zero sugar, you press the whole berries off, and all of a sudden you have sugar again, because, <laughs> and so then you have to finish the fermentation after you've pressed the, the berries. So I've always, every time I've heard someone presenting a Pinot Noir, and then they say something about carbonic maceration, for some reason, I always get some, a little hint of Luden's cough drops. And those cherry, Luden's, that Luden's cherry, cherry lozenges. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Those I, I, I do. Yeah. White box. Yeah. Now that that's the Luden's yeast that you put into it. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, no, I never noticed like, those They make things. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wanted to see if I could get a reaction <laughs> out of you guys. Yeah, you did. Uh, Congrats, the, you did. <laughs> yeah, now, the, uh, it, you're correct. I mean, carbonic maceration tends to give these bright uh, fresh cherry flavors. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan personally of carbonic, just from the standpoint that um, the wines to me tend to be a little bit more simple. Um, generally speaking, I mean these are broad generalizations, but within whole cluster, you're completely changing the chemistry of the wine. The stems are going in, and that's really the big addition. And and. The thing about whole cluster, though, is to understand that what it, it's really very traditional. I mean, you're picking the grapes and you're, you know, you're tossing ch- them in. You're <laughs> chucking the whole bin with the, well, not the bin, but the grapes mm-hmm. and the stems are all going into the fermentation tank. In our case, when we do our Truget wine, uh, Truget being journey or path, uh, and in this case, the path or journey was an experimentation in whole cluster, um, we're putting in the, the, the berries, the stems. We're doing it in a two-ton oak Rousseau tank, so it's a wood tank, and we use native yeast from start to finish. So it's probably the closest that we make to a natural wine. I wouldn't claim it to be a natural wine, but uh, very minimal intervention, get a little bit of juice going, uh, do pump overs to soften up the fruit, let the let the uh, berries begin to uh, decompose a little bit, fermentation starts, um, the, the ferment gets warm, uh, more berries, uh, the skins break, you get more juice, and then at the end, press it off, let the sugars ferment again, and we go to barrel. So native yeast, that's kind of a hit or miss risk, isn't it, sometimes? Um, do you have standby yeast just in case? Oh, yeah. No, we, <laughs> we, we always do. But uh, no, usually we, we Pop have... Pop in a Luden's. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. Get that cherry flavor yeah. in there. <laughs> uh, now, the, um, we typically don't need to uh, inoculate. Uh, if, if you do, it's not so much that the native yeasts aren't fermenting. It's more that uh, you may be uh, having to counteract other... Things that are going on in the fermentation, and if if you don't ferment very quickly, um, sometimes you can develop um, off flavors, EAVA, things of that sort. So you want to get the fermentation done, and sometimes native yeast doesn't get there quick enough. Uh-huh. So you got to urge it along because you don't want any funkiness creeping yeah. in. Exactly. We had talked about um, how some of the California winemakers are, are coming to Oregon for a number of reasons. The lands, uh, uh, people are still welcoming you know, them, and we have rain, and uh, the land's less expensive. But what are we seeing uh, climate change in Oregon? Are you starting to have to change? Because Pinot's a very fickle grape. Are you, um, try, have, are you seeing any residual from climate change? 
you personally in your vineyards or well um a little bit but i think you know climate change is something that um we talk about tremendously but the changes are very incremental Mm -hmm. and um and so while there clearly has been some adjustment um, it hasn't been staggering in the 20 years or so that I've been making wine. Um, what what I've seen, we have a relatively high elevation site. Uh, mm. The top of our vineyard's about 750 feet, which in Oregon is higher elevation. That makes it a little bit cooler. And when I bought the property 25 years ago, I was told by the experts that uh, it was probably a little too high up and I wouldn't get my fruit ripe. And watch this now, (laughs) now with climate change, I'm just perfect. I'm right in the zone you want to be in. And so let's uh, just stop it now, please. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, That would be yeah. hit the pause button and and all is good. Uh, I think, you know, in Oregon, traditionally early on, uh, the founders of the Oregon wine industry moved moved there because they felt that they needed a cool climate to grow true Pinot Noir. And what they discovered is that, indeed, they got that along with a lot of rain. Mm. And what's happened over the years, though, is that Oregon, uh, Oregonians have, have learned how to farm better. They've learned which hills to plant. They've learned how to plant vineyard spacing, which rootstocks, which clones. Learned how to grow Chardonnay properly. Learned how to grow Chardonnay. Yay! And, uh, <laughs> Get rid of yeah, that Wente very, clone, right? Yeah. Very, very bright future in Chardonnay. Well, the, yeah, the, the big Wente clone. There's, yeah. an, there's lots of Wente clones. There's only one that doesn't like to get ripe. Right. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, I think the, the, the way that we farm has enabled us to get fruit riper quicker. And, of course, climate change contributes to that. But traditionally, one of the problems in Oregon was getting ripeness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they got too much of a good thing going back into the 70s and 80s. And sometimes the wines weren't ripe. Uh, we don't have those problems much anymore. 2011 was the last really cold vintage that we had. So if you were to not drink your own Pinot <laughs> from a, your that's region, that's a bad question. What region would you look to for Pinot? I'm going to guess, but I'm not going to let him say it. I mean, where would you select a Pinot from? If you were looking at a wine list and you couldn't bring your own and you just had to put up with what they had and they had everything, what would you get? <laughs> everything had, but yours. Oh, uh, bummer. Well, I think, um, I, you know, Pinot Noir that's done in a balanced way to me, and that's the operative word is balance, Mm -hmm. Uh, not too ripe, uh, not too lean, um, just well-balanced is, is it can, if it's done in a balanced format, then whether it's Burgundy or Oregon or California or New Zealand, um, I like it. That's a good way to skirt the question. But uh, I was going to guess Burgundy just, but um, for you, because I I think I was reading somewhere where you were, you love Burgundy wines. Well, I do love Burgundy and, uh, and I have tremendous respect for Burgundy. Um, I, we have a a consultant from Burgundy, uh, Pierre Millman, who comes over a couple times a year and, and uh, helps us do great things. I brought Pierre in to work on aromatics. Mm. Uh, Aromatics are, are hugely important to Pinot Noir. And if you think about it, um, where do aromatics come from? It's it's sort of like catching clouds, you know. They're mm. they're there. You see them. You know it's there. It's super important. But um, things like richness and ripeness and sweetness and acid, those are all cause and effect things. Oak treatments. I know we know how to control those things. 
Aromatics are much more elusive, and Pierre's been working with us for seven years to develop that. Of course, he lives in Neuilly St. George and, and is a specialist in Burgundy. So, they do um, okay wine there, right? Yeah, yeah we'll take it. Well, you know, they've been practicing <laughs> for a long time. It yeah. took them a thousand years, but I think they finally got it right. <laughs> oh, good for them. Yeah. It's good to uh, see them have some success after that's a awesome. while. Yeah. yeah. In Burgundy. <laughs> and, you know, we would mentioned Chardonnay. You make a Chardonnay. We're going to taste through some of these wines. We just weren't able to do it on the show like we typically do. And, and uh, we'll include some tasting notes and, and some of that in our uh, social media posts. Mm-hmm. So everyone listening can find out more about Jolete. There we go. And La Le Cadu. Le, pretty close. Le, Le Cadu. Le cadeau. Le cadeau. Le cadeau. Le cadeau. I should think French. Are I, these? I should probably spell that. Le it's, cadeau. It's L E. Space. And then a new word. Space. C A D E A U. Le Deux. cadeau, which is the La gift. Cadeau. And we like to say Aww. the gift. Uh, the gift is not the wine. Uh, the wine is actually the excuse. Uh, <laughs> the gift is the land and the friendships. Yeah, the experience of consuming it with people you like. Exactly. I, I love that. I was, we're going to ask what that means, and that's just perfect. It's well, a great no, way to, to wrap up. Availability on these. Are these available across the country? Uh, for the most part. Um, yeah. we, uh, we have fairly broad distribution, even though we're a very, very small winery. The, the problem is that, uh, I mean, we only make uh, a few hundred cases of each of the different cuvées. So a lot of them end up in high-end restaurants, country clubs. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you're going to walk into your local wine shop and see 20 bottles sitting there. It's, you're not going to see like a stack at the end of Total Wine or something, no. <laughs> Probably not. Not, no. not this week, at least. Yeah. That would be a so. sad vintage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the vintage where we had, like, no sun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. That would probably not happen. Well, Tom Mortimer, again, is the, the founder and the owner of Le Cadeau. Pretty good. Ah, gosh darn. I'm Le, Le Cadeau. Le Cadeau. And Jolette Wines in Oregon and Washington. Thank you so much for being with us today. We can't wait to start uh, digging into those wines. Well, thank you both. Good to be here. Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producer for online media is Tara Calligan. Great Minds theme music is from the band Victor and Penny. The song is You'd Be So Nice to Come Home To by Cole Porter. To get in touch with us, check out greatminds.org. For Julie Glenn, I'm Gina Birch. Thanks for listening. Under an August moon burning above